Good morning. I'm glad you're here to join us together to praise the Lord. And that's what we get um, together on Sunday mornings, not only to praise the Lord, but also fellowship one with another and to hear God's word. This morning, um, there's several announcements that are in your bulletin. One that's coming right up at the end of August, and that is Awana's, Awana Clubs. Uh, if you'd like to be a participant in the Awana Clubs, speak to Priscilla, and she'll give you all the information. If you want more information regarding the club that maybe you're not aware of, there's a table in the back that you can take some information, and also a sign-up sheet for the kids that are going to attend Awana Clubs this year. So take advantage of that today before you leave. Also, um, following today's worship service is the church luncheon. And so we encourage you to, to attend that right after the worship service. And also coming up uh, at the end of August also, maybe uh, is the men's triple B uh, coming up on, on Saturday, August the 26th. So those are the, uh, those are the, um, the information that's in your bulletin this morning regarding the things that are going on here at El Paso Bible Church, also ongoing in El Paso Bible Church, are the ministries. And we, like always, for everything that we, we participate in, we ask for your prayer. And so I pray that that's on your list uh, on a regular basis. Continuing this morning, I would ask you to open your Bibles to Romans 13. And I'll be reading just a couple of verses out of chapter 13. Notice I did say Bible, right, because we are a Bible church, so you might have other <laughs> things to look at, but uh, open your Bibles, please. Um, beginning with verse 10, it says, love does, not, the, love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love, the, love is a fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time that now is high time to awake, but wake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. How true that is. Let us pray. Our Father God, this morning, we come with anticipation. The anticipation of meeting one with another. The anticipation, Father, of even joining song and praising you, Father. Anticipation of the study of the word and reading of the word, Father. I pray all these things, Father, bring joy to our heart. As we come on, we come together regularly each and every week. And so, Father, this morning I thank you for bringing us together and understanding that things happen because you allow them to happen, Father. And even this morning, Father, we depend on your mercy. Your mercy is great, and we depend on that each and every day, Father. Because through your mercy, we know we have your forgiveness of sin. And we can draw to you, Father, draw close to you. And so, Father, you encourage us to draw near to you as you draw near to us. And so, Father, this morning I pray for those that are, might not be here, Father, for whatever reason. Pray, Father, that you bring them back to, uh, together for the next coming Sunday. And for those that are here, Father, that might be troubled, Father, I pray that this morning will be one that uh, they can be encouraged by. That they, as they leave, that they be, their hearts be filled with joy and that we can, and they can go, Father, as a different person than they first came in. And for the rest of us, Father, we thank you for the privilege of just coming to worship you, Father, and, and sing praise and, 
and, and songs unto your holy name. And so, Father, this morning I pray that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ be lifted up. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Would you stand with us for a time of worship?
My name was lost till your love reached down. You rescued me. Now my name is found. I was a slave to my sin and shame, but those chains fell off when you changed my name. You changed my name. You changed my name from to forgot to save my grace.
Children, you guys can go to Children's Church if that's where you're headed today. Get uh, arranged here in a second. Oh, uh, welcome. Uh, if you're visiting with us, my name is Josh Meyer. I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Peter this morning. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter. And uh, chapter 4 is where we'll be. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, we have a a number of people traveling and out of town, some folks sick, so we ought to, ought to pray before we get started this morning for recovery and travel mercies and all of those things. Uh, join with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we do thank you uh, for this time that we're about to have in your word today. We thank you for the opportunity that we have uh, to come and study your word and, and not simply to feel nice, uh, but to learn what is good for us and to learn how to do good and to do what is your will towards each other, specifically within this local body. And we thank you for it. And we thank you for it again. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Uh, this morning, as I said, we're continuing in our, our series on First Peter. Um, and here... Peter uses this phrase, the end of all things. The end of all things. And we'll cover what we think that that means, but it is important that we understand that part of our, our identity, right, part of our identity as choice aliens, choice being someone who is precious, right, something for which a price was paid, right, uh, not something that is valueless, right, it's something that we, God values highly. Oh, I'm supposed to pass something out here. I'm sorry, I interrupted myself. Guys, triple B, August 26th. 
I'm not sure what it's doing on the floor. I'm passing you a sign-up here so we know how many potatoes to bake for my own good and for the good of the order. So if you're coming to the Triple B, you need to bring a piece of meat and something to drink. All right, so let's do that. Glenn, would you pass that around, please? Please sign up. All right, I apologize. This has been a, a hectic week, and I spent a little time in the sun yesterday, you can probably tell. And uh, this week, I start both a class I'm taking and a class I'm teaching, so I have six hours of lecture as well to prepare for in various ways. So you'll forgive me if something slipped my mind here, but our, our identity, right, is choice aliens. Essentially, people who exist near the end of all things. The end of all things is near, is the words that Peter uses. That is our precious purpose to anticipate the end of all the things to which we are accustomed. And people get nervous about that. Um, but Peter says it different ways, that we're looking forward to an inheritance that is reserved, ready, and waiting for us for eternity. That's not something you've experienced, right? Right? You haven't experienced that in your life. You haven't experienced that thing. You're not com comfortable with even anticipating exactly what that will be. But this identity that we have is, is an end, a telos, a finishing identity that we have. In Christ, born again, believers, redeemed, looking for that inheritance, living life uh, according to those rules, according to those terms, in that absolute framework, right? And in that framework, we've talked about what it is that our life is comprised of, that we are here for a reason, we're here for a purpose, we have obligations to fulfill. One of those will hit again, actually, today, loving one another from the heart. Peter will call it a fervent love here, as he has called it previously also. To do what is right, to love one another from the heart, to long for the Word, and particularly also to keep our behavior excellent in order that we would do what is right in all of our interactions. And that's important, right? You you spend a lot of time probably, if uh, we've talked about this, that I'm, I'm an overthinker. I think most people, some people mistake me for a pessimist. A pessimist and an overthinker are not the same thing, are they, right? Uh, maybe there's some overlap a lot. But I will, I tend to, I will overthink things. And you can overthink this, these obligations, perhaps. Or to keep our behavior excellent, we don't want to do what is wrong, we want to do what is right. Is that easy enough? Right? You want to do what is right. Sometimes that's morally right, sometimes it is the thing that has the most chance for success. Right? So we want to do what is right. Don't overthink that difference, right? Keeping our behavior excellent, even when, as Peter allows for the possibility that it leads to suffering, so that if you do what is right, it is better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong, no matter how severe the suffering is going to be. And we know that because the very first example he gives is Jesus Christ, who suffered more than any other human, any other man, and yet did what is right, and it was better than not doing so. Noah as well, 120 years, preacher with zero percent success rate, ridiculed and mocked, suffered for doing what is right. 
And in that context of living in a world as precious choice strangers, dispersed among the nations, which is another partial definition of the church, right? Indwelt by the Holy Spirit, believers in Jesus Christ, dispersed among the nations, among whom we are to have excellent behavior. And that is the context that Peter tells them, baptism now saves you. Baptism saves you. Baptism does not get you to heaven when you die. Baptism saves you. Most of the time, and you should just adjust your understanding of the word save in Scripture, probably about 90% of the time it has nothing to do with you going to heaven when you die. Maybe higher than that. I'm being generous. The word save means to rescue or to deliver. What does baptism, which then the early church was nearly... It was at least risky. It was at least a liability that could result in your execution, in your death. And Peter turns that on its head and says, no, baptism is not a death sentence. Baptism rescues you from being persecuted and suffering in isolation from the body of Christ because you have stood up and proclaimed who you are in Christ at great personal risk. You're trustworthy. It saves you but it doesn't get you to heaven when you die. We need to be okay with that distinction. In fact, not just okay with it. That's one I'll fight for. Baptism saves you from those things. And it allows us to live thinking the thoughts of Christ who has ceased from sin. Right? He is no longer affected by sin. He is in a glorified state He does not exist in its presence. And we can't live in his context. We don't live where he lives right now. We live on this earth as choice aliens, fulfilling our purpose. But we can think his thoughts. And that's what Peter says to do, to embrace the benefits of his way of thinking, knowing that he is the one who judges the living and the dead. And we talked about that at some length. That's, in fact, two separate judgments. The judgment of the living is what we know as the judgment seat of Christ. You are living when you get there, believers. All of us must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. All of us. No exception. The us is believers in Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. The judgment, the assessment, the discerning of the living. You're living when you get there in Christ, and you are living in Christ when you leave. The judgment of the dead is what we know as as the great white throne judgment. Nobody who is alive shows up at the great white throne judgment. Everybody is dead when they get there, and they are dead when they leave. Two separate judgments. Christ is responsible for all of the judgment. In fact, John, in John's gospel, he tells us that himself. All judgment has been given to the Son. All of it. Verse 6 says this, but, oh, whoops, we already did James. I apologize. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. 
living versus dead. All judgment is given to Christ, who judges the living and the dead. The dead at the great white throne, the living at the bema. Now what this is not saying, and I've heard people try to explain that this is what Jesus was doing, is that Christ went to a cemetery and preached at dead people. We're in the wrong spot, right? I have done a bee removal in a cemetery. That was interesting. In a mausoleum, a crypt. Um, at closing time, I said, please don't lock the gate. Because uh, I, I don't really want to stay here all night. I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious, as they say, right? I don't want to get locked in a cemetery. I don't need to go preach there to people who are physically dead, right? And dead is another word that gets tossed around, messed around with all the time. There are people who are dead in the flood. They're de- that's our destiny. That's the grip. That's their identity. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. The gospel is preached to those who cannot save themselves who are dead. That's the purpose of the gospel being preached. Those who are in the realm of death, death, death in the flesh, and the purpose of the gospel is so that those people would be made alive in the spirit. That's God's will. In fact, it says that is according to the will of God. Or simply, it is according to God. If you want to make a distinction there. It's what God wants. That's the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. It's God's will. Romans 10, 14 says something similar, right? It's a rhetorical statement all the way through. How then shall they call upon him in whom they have not heard? Excuse me, in whom they have not believed. And how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? That's the mechanism. Faith comes by hearing something called the gospel. You, you can believe something, but you can't believe the gospel unless you hear it. Which is why you shouldn't really let me hear you say, I probably won't rebuke you, but I might cringe, right? Preach the gospel at all times if necessary. Use words. Huh? I might convulse if you say it more than once, but I will cringe at least. I might develop a scowl. Because you can't preach things without words. Preaching is words. Proclamation is words. There's no secret proclamation of the gospel. Part of that is because there is no good work that you can do that an unbeliever cannot do. And there's no sin that you can commit that an unbeliever, or excuse me, there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that you can't also commit. You, you simply cannot clearly preach the gospel by your behavior. It doesn't tell anybody anything except that today you are a little better than you were yesterday, possibly, or a little worse. It's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't know people coming to faith without hearing the gospel in words. And faith in that message, in that person of Jesus Christ, who is the gospel himself, is the means by which those who are dead are made alive in the Spirit. And the preaching of the message of the gospel is what makes that possible. And I harp on that, guys, because there are vast quantities of churches today in the world and in our country and in our city that teach something different. The Bible doesn't teach something different, but they do. 
And they will teach on that, and they're actually kind of proud about it. They will say that regeneration precedes faith. Do you understand what that means? That means that God gives somebody, regenerates them, gives them a new beginning, gives them a new birth prior to coming to faith in the gospel. Anybody? Does that make your, your brain hurt a little bit? It makes my brain hurt every time I hear it. They'll say that God regenerates you and then gives you the gift of faith. That is a a fairly key central reformed doctrine. It's not something that we teach here at El Paso Bible Church. I want that to be loud and proud on the recording, by the way. We do not teach that (laughs) at El Paso Bible Church. We teach the opposite. That faith in the gospel is the instrument by which God justifies and regenerates. It is by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ, alone. There are no secret people getting regenerated against their will who are later given the gift of faith. They believe in the gospel, and they are believers at that point. That's the purpose, so that the dead might be made alive. Those who are dead and subject to death in the flesh as men. Verse 7 says, the end of all things is near. Various times, depending on the climate in the world or in the country, people have a hard time embracing that fact. When did Peter write this? 2,000 years ago, roughly. It's near. The end of all things was near. Choice aliens live in a world in which the end of all things is near, and they have lived it for 2,000 years to date. I get people all the time, uh, Maui is on fire and Joe Biden is president, and our economy is getting flushed down the toilet. The end of all things is near. Listen, generations of people have made the mistake of observing the fall of a nation (laughs) and assuming that it was the end of the world. You may be observing one. You may be, legitimately. That could happen. Happens a lot. But the church has always existed in a realm in which the end of all things is near in God's plan. Even 2,000 years ago. It's near. I mean, this was written in a context in which the world was ruled by an empire that fell before any of your great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents were even born. So you do need to understand it. I mean, to be frank, it is really remarkable, and I'm impressed by it every time I study the process of the preservation of God's Word, that we even have this text after 2,000 years. They did not write it in stone on a granite mountain. You know what it was preserved in? It was preserved by humans, being used by God to preserve the Word of God written down because it was so critical that we understand because God preserved it through them. Been a long time. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of whole people groups have disappeared, not to mention their texts. Even their holy writings 
have disappeared in that same amount of time. But the end of all things is near. It's relative, right? It's a ratio, in a sense. You know your life is short on this earth, right? You compare your life, which might be 80-something years, maybe, if due to strength, Scripture says. And that really hasn't changed since those words were written. Um, And you compare your life to people in the Bible that live 900 years, 600 years, 137 years. Looked at one today. 137 years for Ishmael. I was Ishmael, lived that long. And you think, wow, they really lived a long time. No, they didn't. They were created to be immortal. How do you compare a mortal lifespan with immortality? I happen to be a young earth creationist, and so I understand Scripture to teach a relatively short period in which this creation has existed and likely in which this creation will come to an end, the end of all things. That means that I take it to be thousands and not millions, billions, and trillions of years old in this creation at minimum. As a proportion of, of that, 2,000 years is a long time, right? It's a long time. If something's only a few thousand years old, you have 2,000 years out of it. Well, I mean, like you might buy a set of tires, right? Michelin sells a set of tires that's supposed to be 80,000 miles. If you put 60,000 miles on the tires, the rest of its lifespan, that's pretty short. But it is important to know and to remind ourselves that we're the immortals in this story. We're the immortals in this story. It is nothing, nothing in comparison to the eternity stretched out before us. The end of all things is near. The culmination, the telos, the completion of our purpose is near in comparison, right? Now, so, so keep that in mind, right? This isn't comic book stuff, right? You didn't get bitten by a spider and become a superhero, all right? You didn't come from another planet and develop superpowers. But you are the immortals in the story. This is not a comic book. This is biblical truth. The world responds to that same truth differently, don't they? One of the movies that came out while I think I was in high school or college was called, it was called Armageddon, Bruce Willis, right, where they sent the oil drillers to the meteorite to try to save the world. One of the rig, one of the, the oil drillers goes out and borrows money from every single person he can finds every last casino he can, finds every last woman he can, buys every last car he can before they get on the ship and go try to blow up this huge chunk of rock so it doesn't hit the earth. That's, that's the world, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. Become profligate and foolish. Wasteful. Whip out the credit cards. 
Guys, we don't die. Jesus states it that way, right, to Martha. He says, you shall, he who believes in me shall live even though he dies. Even if the whole enchilada wraps up tomorrow, today, we don't die. And Peter addresses that. He says that being who you are, being choice aliens, the end of all things is near. So, therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayers. Your translation may have a singular there. It is prayers. And I think that's important, right? Be of sound judgment and be sober. Get serious because all the things in the world, the things that you don't give a crap about and the things that you love dearly, the end of all things is near. And the one way to survive this is to be made alive in the Spirit. So be of sound judgment and be sober for this purpose. I said it's significant. Why are the prayers versus prayer significant? Um, People who aren't sensible and self-controlled they might, they, they might pray, I think. I, I thought about this for a while. They, they are, uh, they pray. They have a very limited framework of prayer. They want to be delivered from the consequences of their foolish or sinful actions a lot, right? Right? When I was in college, I was well acquainted with people in the throes of not just alcoholism, but just straight-up drunkenness, right? Just complete and total, on the verge of alcohol poisoning multiple days a week, including my roommate, who I thought was going to expire one day in my room due to the effects of alcohol poisoning. He was a Buddhist. You know who he prayed to when he was almost dying? Dear God, save me! I don't know who Buddhists pray to, but I don't think they call him God. I I don't know. It It was the same thing that I heard over and over and over from people in similar situations. Uh, I worked for a catering company for a number of years with open bars all over, right? Same sort of narrative. People who are unself-controlled and who make poor decisions often pray one thing. Deliver me from this foolishness. Save me from the consequences of my poor choices. Please save me. And there's always a, a bargain at the end. And I won't ever do it again or I won't. Whatever. It's a very narrow prayer. Dear God, what have I done? By contrast, being sensible and of sound judgment allows you to pray other things. To pray for people, their actual needs, and not just for yourself. Guys, it, it, it is not a sign of maturity that if you spend 85% of your time praying for your own needs and for your own self and for what you want and what you need. Sound judgment and soberness, seriousness, helps us to understand what we need to pray about for other people. Pray for others' needs, others' bondage, and others' well-being. That's its purpose. 
But above all, verse 8, and this is where we'll, last verse we'll cover today. Above all, in this context, in your behavior, in your response, knowing that the end of all things is near, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. He said that before. Keep fervent in your love for one another because of who you are. But here he has a purpose. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. As I said, that's the second time that Peter has commanded them to keep fervent. It was, keep fervent in your love before was a response to our identity. Here it is a means to an end, to a purpose. Keep loving eagerly or constantly. Be excited to be sacrificially loving towards each other. And when I tell somebody that, right, because when I say biblically, keep fervent in your love for one another, constantly loving, eagerly loving, I, again, this is not an emotive warmth that you're expressing towards somebody. That may be there, that may be present, that may not be present. The obligation is still to love regardless of how you feel. Regardless of how you feel. You don't get to fall out of it. Right? You don't get to fall out of it. sacrificially loving each other. It's hard enough when I tell somebody, men, lay your lives down for your wife. One person. Peter says, keep fervent in your love for one another. Be eager in it. Sacrificially seeking the best interest of someone else. And it's not just one person, it's the body of Christ. And it's a valid response, right? Why? Why do I have to do that? Can't I just have my circle? (laughs) Can't I just have my circle? This is why I don't really like the modern iteration of small group ministries. Because then it gives me an out. I've just got to focus on these six or eight people, and as long as I love them, then I'm I'm fulfilling my obligation to loving the body of Christ. No, you're not. You may have a priority. You certainly have a priority to love your wife a certain way. You have a priority to love your children and to lead your children a certain way. But we are obligated to keep fervent in our love for one another and not simply a clique out of the body of Christ. Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. That word is kalupto. It's the, kind of the opposite of the idea of revelation. The book of Revelation in most languages is just called apocalypsis, right? The uncovering, the revelation, the hiding. Kalupto is the opposite of that. It's to hide something. To hide something or to keep it unrevealed, to keep it covered. That same concept is what the Old Testament refers to as the, what happened with the Old Testament sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrifices did not eliminate sin. They didn't pay for sin. They atoned for sin, which is covering the sin. What it means is to render it irrelevant in my temporal life. 
You understand? To treat it as if it's not an obstacle in our life between two parties, between two people. To cover that sin. It doesn't pretend it doesn't exist. But it does reflect a commitment and a decision to love instead of allowing an obstacle to be built up in between a relationship. That is something we've forgotten, actually. We, we find in, in many churches today, churches like us, that most people really complain a lot about cancel culture. Yeah, you've heard that. Let me let you in on a little secret. <laughs> the local church is the original cancel culture. It really is. We taught the world how to do that because we allowed the presence of sin to divide the fool out of most local churches. Within the body, if somebody sins against us or whatever, we do not make any attempt to decide to sacrificially love and cover the sin, to refuse to allow it to be an obstacle in my relationships with other people. But instead, we functionally cancel the person. That was going on in Corinthians. They let their small group ministry become a fractured mess. If you remember the first part, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Jesus. That's the small group I'm in, by the way. I'm of Jesus. Just kidding. Again. Love covers a multitude of sins. I, I, want, I have to mention it because this is talking about within the local body. This is not talking about between you and the world. The thing that you, you shouldn't get offended when the world sins against you either. Dead people do dead things. When somebody in the world who is an unbeliever sins against you, you need to tell them about Jesus. That's what needs to happen. This is talking about in the local body of Christ Love covers a multitude of sins. But we don't allow obstacles to be thrown up in our relationships. I want to tell you that a, probable, a significant percentage of sins that you perceive having been committed against you are not malicious. They're not intentional. I would say probably three-fourths of the time at minimum, people don't even know that they did it. They don't even know. That may be baggage they've carried since their childhood. It may be baggage they've carried from their last church. It may be baggage they carry whatever, but they don't. They have a separate set of sins that they are trying perhaps to experience victory over and freedom from, and they can't focus on all of them, and so they're not motivated by trying to hurt you or destroy you or slander you or anything else. Remember, the command to love one another fervently is not dependent on how you're feeling in the moment. It's a decision not to allow someone else's behavior, intentional or unintentional, malicious or just ignorant, to throw up an obstacle in your relationship with them. Because as a pastor, I do have a unique viewpoint. We... We get accused of malicious intent a lot. 
actually, of hurting people's feelings on purpose. I do hurt your feelings on purpose. With the Bible, right? If I hurt your feelings because I tell you that I think that watching football is fluff, I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, Tim. I think playing football has all sorts of great benefits. I think playing sports has all sorts of great benefits. But watching football combined with drinking a case of beer is just a way to weight, gain a lot of weight, right? It, it's entertainment. It's fluff. Okay, so you shouldn't be addicted to that. If I say something like that, I'm not being malicious. That's just my assessment. That's my opinion. You might perceive of it as a sin against you. But a lot of times when that happens, nobody even says a word to somebody else. No one ever says, you hurt me. No one says that. You know who they go and tell? Me. I'm not involved most of the time, you know? That person hurt me, and I'm not going to work with them. I'm not going to volunteer with them. I'm not going to serve with them. I'm not going to sing with them. I'm not going to... I'm not going to do it. I mean, literally stamping the foot every once in a while. I'm not involved. I'm not involved. It does no good to come to me to tell me about how somebody else hurt your feelings. But love obligates you to, to go to the person and say, hey, I don't know if you knew this, See how the benefit of the doubt in there? I don't know if you knew this, but you hurt me. And uh, you're obligated to do that. And you're obligated to love. And that's the loving thing to do. The flip side is often is true, right? If you're, if you're sitting there thinking that somebody did something malicious to you, and I struggle with this. I do struggle myself. I assign malice in ignorance. See what I mean? If I think you went and told somebody that I'm a duty head or whatever. I know y'all don't say duty head, but I'm not going to say what y'all say up here. All right. And I don't check with you and I don't ask you and I don't follow up and I don't love you enough to come to your face and say that to you, I have committed a sin against you because I have assigned malice for something that was done in ignorance or not done at all. So love covers that sin too, right? If you find out that's happening, you need to love anyway. Love covers a multitude of sins. Peter allows allows for the, the reality that there may be some that are unresolvable. There may be ones that are so extreme in our interpersonal relationships that we can't overcome. But few, few, It covers a, a lot of them. But as with almost everything, we shouldn't hang our head on the exceptions, right? Right? 
if love covers 99 sins out of 100, that's huge progress, isn't it? So I tell you this fairly regularly that I, I love you. All of you, even the ones who are camping this weekend. We've got a few people out of town camping. Love them too. And I'm committed to applying it this way to love, no matter what is being done. And I hope that you will do that too. It is an obligation. It's not an obligation for two or three people that you like to sit next to at the potluck in a minute. It's an obligation to the whole body. To love. And to not allow obstacles to be built in relationships. To love. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word and uh, for the difficult things it says sometimes. It's much easier to justify an obstacle than it is to cover it in our relationships within the local body. Uh, Father, we thank you for the empowerment of the Spirit for the information from your word and the encouragement and exhortation to not allow uh, sins to come between us. Father, thank you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Just a reminder, we do have a potluck uh, right after our service. Yeah. And we also thank you for the food that we're about to eat. And uh, we ask that you bless our time together as we enjoy it. In Jesus' name. Would you stand with us? We'll dismiss with a song. I'm